uh, starting a new series this week, and uh, um, we're uh, calling it For God So Loved Underscore. He said, ah, see, that was a trick question. Somebody said the world, which is true. God does love the world. But sometimes as Christians, what we do is that we kind of go, yes, God loves the world, the big, bad, beautiful world, and because he does, I don't need to worry about it. But what if in God loving the world, it was actually broken down to people that you actually know, like God loved John, God loved Susie, God loved your neighbor, God loved your classmate, right? God loved the people that you work with, the people that you do life with, go to the gym with, right? All of a sudden, it becomes personal for us, and that's what we're going to explore over the next few weeks. So we're taking a practical look at how can you and I live out our faith, live out this treasure, this grace, this mercy that we've received in Jesus Christ. How do you and I live that out practically with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers? And I think the timing of that is actually pretty good because I, I was actually in between services this morning, and I re- realized oh, it's May 1st. Like, did anyone else, like, where did May 1st come from? Like, it just kind of crept up on us, you know? Um, and what that means, in the month of May, what happens in the month of May to Oregonians it, the, is that we come out of hibernation, right? You hope it stops raining, but I'm not so sure. And, uh, and, and hopefully there's some sunshine, and you kind of start working in your yard, and you start, we, we tend to kind of come out of hibernation a little bit, and we tend to kind of plug into life, and all of a sudden you go, oh, there's that neighbor. What was his name again? You know, right? And so I want to kind of move this to front of mind. As we kind of come out of hibernation, as we go into the summer season, it's an awesome opportunity for us to be thinking about our faith and thinking about how we practically live out our faith. And so what we're going to do is that we're going to do something real practical. You're going to get a workbook at the end. We're going to have some homework. Back to school, right? No tests at the end, though, so it's okay, right? There's no pass-fail on this. And uh, you're going to get a couple of resources, a couple of little things that I want us just to take time over the coming weeks to take this from a Sunday morning and plug it into some time on my own during the week. And man, I want to do a few things. I want to consider a few things, read a few scriptures, learn a few things, think about a few things, and see if the Lord might use me to love the same people that he loves. And so today, I have an assignment. My one assignment is simply this. I want to try to answer the question, who is your neighbor? Now, there's a guy in a recent American history who probably did more for American culture to help us think about who's your neighbor. Can anyone guess who it is? Mr. Rogers. And so you guys, some of you grew up with this. Some of you heard about this from your parents. Some of you are clueless like me, you know. Like, I didn't grow up here, so I didn't have Mr. Rogers. Uh, And I feel like I lost something from my childhood as a result. But you guys know the story. You know, Mr. Rogers would kind of open up the front door, and he'd come into the house, and he'd take off his blazer, and he'd hang it up in the closet, and he was so methodical and deliberate, right? And then he'd put on his red cardigan, and then he'd put on his, take off his shoes, put on his slippers, and while he was doing all of that, he would sing a little song. Does anyone remember the little song? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day to be a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Look, here's the really... Here's the bad news. That was pitiful. (laughs) Here's the good news. It was way better than first service. Give yourselves a round of applause. You're better than first service. Come on. You can sing. That's awesome. (laughs) And so, so Mr. Rogers got a culture, got a generation of people to think about being a neighbor. In fact, the question that he asked, and I loved how he asked the question, he said it this way. Won't you be my neighbor? 
assuming I really want to be your neighbor, won't you be my neighbor? And what we discovered over the last 40, 50 years is that American culture answered the question, no. <laughs> well, kind of. And, and what we're realizing is that, that many of the studies, whether it's like the Pew Research Group or Gallup, you know, doing studies on what does it mean to be a neighbor, and, and most people don't know their neighbor's friend. In fact, what we discovered recently, and I think it was in 2015 that one of the more recent studies that was done on this, is that only 20% of Americans spend any time with their neighbors. And that's down from 60% in the 1970s that would regularly socialize with their neighbors. A third of Americans don't even know who their neighbors are because we have this little thing called a garage door opener. You're laughing because you know what you do with the garage door opener, don't you? You're in your car, you push that little button, this door goes up, you pull in, and then you push the button just to make sure that, you know, you don't get together, you don't see your neighbor, right? And then you have a fence that's built around your yard, you know, it's like... And what we've discovered is that in American culture, we've actually become less neighborly, that we know our neighbors less, we interact with neighbors less. And, and so this morning, I want us to explore what does it mean for us to be a neighbor and who is our neighbor? Am I just talking about the person that lives next to you or am I talking about uh, somebody else? Is there a larger group? And here's what's so awesome about the Bible. The Bible answers these kinds of questions. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture this morning that I'm sure is going to be familiar to you. It's found in Luke chapter 10. You can swing over there in your Bibles or maybe open up your phone or we'll have it on the screen if you don't have that and you can read along. But in Luke chapter 10, there's a story and you're going to be so familiar with this story, I'm sure, at least part of it. And the story is called the Good Samaritan. Now, we would understand that term pretty easily because we live in a culture that uses the term Samaritan or the Good Samaritan, right? So, you know, there's the Good Sam Hospital, right? Not, you know, and there's hospitals named after that all over the country. Um, we would have Samaritan's Purse, the Good Samaritans. Like, like, we would be, as a culture, kind of familiar with what does it mean to be a Good Samaritan? Well, it means that you're kind of giving your life and, you know, kind of serving other people, you know, be a Good Samaritan, help somebody out, right? That's what we ought to do. And so we're going to take a look at that. And I think today we're going to discover that Jesus actually had some deeper things, some broader things that he wanted us to learn from this passage of Scripture and from this little phrase that we oftentimes use in culture, to be a good Samaritan. Now, the story itself is found in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Dr. Luke, who, who was, uh, uh, and I know I pronounce his name funny. I'm from Ireland, okay? My wife mocks me all the time, okay? Luke, 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 Luke. How do you say it, Luke? I don't know. Gospel of Luke, that's where it's going, okay? Dr. Luke, okay? He was fascinated with Jesus. And Theophilus, he, you know, kind of assigned and said, hey, Luke, would you, Luke, Luke, would you go and would you do a little research on Jesus? So he hung out with Jesus and he talked to people that were witnesses to Jesus and he wrote two letters or, or uh, texts in the New Testament, the, book, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And what he was trying to help us understand is he was trying to help us understand two things. In fact, the book of Luke or the Gospel of Luke can actually be divided this way. In, in the first nine chapters, Luke is wanting us to understand this is who Jesus is. 
You want to know who Jesus is? Go read the first nine chapters of the book of Luke. You're going to see stories. You're going to see how Jesus interacts with people. This Jesus who is the son of God, who's the visible expression of the invisible God. He's demonstrating who Jesus is. And the second thing that we discover in the writings of Luke is that he is wanting us not just to understand who Jesus is, in chapters 10 through 18 of that same book, he breaks it down this way. He's trying to help us understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? So look, when you, and this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible's so intentional about how it's even written. That's why it's called the inspired, God-breathed word of God. There's the Holy Spirit that's stitching all of this stuff together, using uh, imperfect men and women to kind of tailor the script or write out the, the text. And, and the, what he's wanting us to understand is this is who Jesus is. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Now, in chapter 10, that's when the shift happens. You've learned about who Jesus is. You've learned about how he functions and how he thinks and how he interacts with people. Now we're going to learn what does it mean for you and I to follow Jesus. And one of the things that we discover in Luke chapter 10, in fact, it's throughout the whole book of Luke. In fact, it's throughout the whole Bible. But one of the things that we discover is that you and I, those who are followers of Jesus, this is who he is, this is what it means to follow him. So those of us who are followers of Jesus recognize and understand that there's a couple of things that we're actually asked to do. And the first thing that we're asked to do, and you see this in the first part of, the, of chapter 10 of, that, of the book of Luke, what happens is he's writing a story about how Jesus sends out the 70 disciples and he says, I don't want you to take a backpack and I don't want you to take an extra pair of shoes and I don't want you to take extra stuff and I want you to go and I want you to share the message of the gospel. In fact, he says this, I want you to urge people to believe it. And so Jesus, and this is what Luke records, that this is what it means, to, this is who Jesus is. And the first thing that we need to understand about following Jesus is that we have been entrusted with a message. It's called the gospel. The story of God that we unpacked in the fall God's intent in creation and what happened in the fall and how Jesus comes to redeem us and in redeeming us, he's restoring us. You and I have been entrusted with that message called the gospel. We're to share the gospel. We're to urge people to believe the gospel. This thing is transformational. But the second thing that we learn about what it means to follow Jesus is that not only are we to share this message, we're actually to practically live it out. In fact, if I could say it this way, we have a gospel message to share, and we are to be gospel neighbors to the people that God puts in our path. And this is what chapter 10 kind of breaks down that way. So where the 70 go out, and they come back rejoicing because people have responded to the message. And then the next thing that happens in this passage is that Jesus encounters a religious scholar or a lawyer. And this is what it says in Luke Chapter 10, and we'll pick it up in verse 25. It says, and behold, a lawyer. Now, when you and I think about a lawyer, we think about like, you know, somebody that's been to law school and, you know, passed the bar and they're involved in civil suits and, you know, court system and all that kind of stuff. What Jesus is referring to or what this passage is referring to is not a lawyer in that sense. It's a religious scholar. And so this is someone who has been to Bible college and seminary and they have more degrees than, you know, you know what, what they know what to do with. And so this religious scholar who loves and reveres the law of God approaches Jesus. And he said this, he stood up and put Jesus to the test. So we ought to understand something here that this religious scholar is not 
approaching Jesus with a sincere question, right? Jesus, I have a question, you know? No, 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 he's trying to trick Jesus. He's trying to trip him up. This is the motivation. This is the mode. And so it goes this way. It says, he says this, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, how do you understand the law of God? You're the scholar, why don't you tell me? Which, by the way, is just brilliant on Jesus' part, by the way. Can I just encourage you, if somebody asks you with a difficult question, don't answer the question, ask another question back, right? This is what Jesus does. And so Jesus, he knows the answer to the question, but he's turning the tables on the scholar. And he goes on in verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God. Can you imagine like the self-righteous pride that this lawyer or this legal scholar's answer? You know, you shall love the God, Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and, your na- and love your neighbors as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Good job, buddy. Do this and you will live. Now, isn't that interesting? Because Jesus says, you, you answered correctly. You have the right answer. And most of us or many of us understand the answer to the question. But look what Jesus says. Do it. Like, go and live this out. And so the, this lawyer, he trying to now justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? In other words, the lawyer hadn't been doing the very thing that he had told Jesus he needed to do to get eternal life. And so he now has to justify himself. So he thinks to himself, well, I'm gonna ask Jesus, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Hoping that Jesus will answer with some sort of an answer that will get him off the hook. And he goes on in verse 30 and he says this, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he tells him a story and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and, departed, and then departed, leaving him half dead. Now remember in Jewish culture, if there, you couldn't be around a dead body. There was rules and all that kind of stuff going on. So this guy's half dead. Now by chance a priest, right, so the pastor of the church is walking by, and he's going down the road. You would expect him to help, but he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, now this is really important, and some of you know this, the Jews and the Samaritans, like, hated each other. Like, I'm talking hated each other. It's like when the we used to have the Seattle Sonics and the Trailblazers, or maybe if you're a Timbers fan and the Seattle Sounders, like, like this ratchets it up to a whole nother level of hatred, right? Like they just hate each other. So here you have this Jewish scholar, and Jesus doesn't pick a Jewish uh, priest or a Levite or a person who's helping out in the temple to be the person who's going to do the right thing. He picks the enemy of the guy who asked him the question. And so here's the Samaritan comes along, as he journeyed, and he came to where he was, and he saw him, the man lying half dead, and he had compassion. Interestingly, the, the word that's most often used to describe who Jesus is, is the word compassion. And so here's one who had compassion. And he went to, uh, and he went to him, and he bound him up, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is about two days worth of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, 
and whatever more you spend, I will repay when you come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And so Lord, this morning, as we just, uh, just take a look at your word this morning, I pray that, Lord, your word is, uh, Father, it's double-edged sword. Lord, it goes, Father, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. And Lord, as we just unpack this today, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, we wanna be uh, one that goes and practices the things that we read in your word. And so Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. So here we have this story, and just, just so that you and I kind of understand what's going on once again, is that this religious scholar is trying to trick Jesus. Why is the religious scholar trying to trick Jesus? Well, simply put, Jesus hung out with people that were breaking all the religious laws. Jesus was friends with people who didn't keep the law. And remember, Jesus is a rabbi. He has disciples. You know, he's supposed to be an example of what it means to be righteous and holy and all of these kinds of things. And yet Jesus is in relationship, hanging out with people that are not like him, not like the religious community. They're, they're prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and drunkards and gluttons, all of these kinds of people. And Jesus is hanging out with these kinds of people. And so the religious community, and in particular, this religious scholar is thinking, I have an opportunity to trick Jesus. I'm going to ask him a question. Because he hangs out with sinners, he's going to either um, hang himself in the sense of like he's going to hang up, hang himself in the sense that he's, uh, he's going to answer the question incorrectly. Because either he's going to answer the question and let all the sinners off the hook, or he's going to answer the question and violate God's holiness. And so he's trying to trick Jesus. So how do I get eternal life? And what he was expecting Jesus, because Jesus hung out with sinners, because Jesus hung out with people that didn't fit into the religious community, because he was friendly with them and constantly inviting them into relationship with Jesus, what he was expecting Jesus to say was, well, it doesn't really matter. God just loves them. But that's not how Jesus answers the question. Because if he had answered the question that way, he would have been violating God's holiness and the fact that we have sinned against God and there has to be payment and penalty for that sin. And so he doesn't answer the question that way. And as I've already said, what he does, because he's so smart, because he's Jesus, and we can all learn from him, he asks this scholar a question. Well, you're the expert. What does the law say? Now, at this point, the scholar has an option. He can read the Torah, right, which is what was generally considered to be God's moral law, and there were 700 rules and regulations, you know? And, you know, some of, when I was raising my kids, I think we had like 12 on our fridge or something that, you know, you're going to love one another, or you're going to obey mom and dad, you're going to, right? Like, so we had a few rules in our house. Anybody else have some rules in their house? But none of you have 700 rules that you're supposed to abide by, right? At least I hope you don't. That's like impossible, and so he has a choice. He can recite the 700 rules or he can summarize the 700 rules. And, and he didn't make this thing up on the spot. What the religious elite had done was they had summarized the law, all of the moral code that they had built out into these two expressions. Love God, which by the way, John teaches us that to love God isn't just to say I love you, it's to obey him, right? 
It's to choose him over everything else in life. And so he says, love God, but I also want you to love your neighbor. And so he's summarizing all of the law by saying, love God and love your neighbor. And now, instead of Jesus being trapped, the scholar's trapped. You see, the law that he revered, the law that he loved so very much is telling him that it's not just about me having right relationship with God, me trying to keep all the commandments and obey him, which, by the way, is impossible without the grace of Jesus Christ, without the help of Jesus Christ that constantly forgives us and empowers us to overcome sin. But it's not just about that. I actually have a responsibility to love the people around me. And this is where Jesus, once again, is so brilliant. Because Jesus tells a story. This would have been a very common practice. Because a lot of the people that would minister, quote unquote, or work in Jerusalem, would actually leave Jerusalem, which was up in the mountain territory, and they would kind of come through these mountain passes, and they would come down into Jericho. And Jericho was a little bit more of an oasis. It was on the plains, and, and and it was kind of a great place to live. And so people would go work up in Jerusalem, and then on their way, they would go back to Jericho where they would live. It's like if you work in downtown Portland, then you could live out in Happy Valley, right? Like, it's kind of a journey, right? But don't think, when you think of this pathway or this highway, we're not thinking of something that cars or horses are on. We're thinking of a mountain pass, dusty trail through a dangerous area because there were robbers and thieves who understood that people had been up there working. They got paid. They're on their way back to Jericho. Hey, we could jump them and uh, beat them up and steal their wages. And so Jesus is telling a story That would have been really common. In fact, there's a portion of that pathway that's known as the pathway of blood. Meaning, this is a really common thing. Now, the brilliance of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't kind of pick, you know, the way he tells the story. He doesn't kind of pick just any kind of random person. But the implication is that the person who's laying on the ground is kind of a part of the the scholars kind of in-group. And that the hero of the story isn't someone who was familiar with that, but would have been considered the enemy of the person who was laying there beaten up. And so the brilliance of Jesus is that now he's put this scholar, and quite frankly, put really kind of all of us, as we'll discover, in this awkward spot. Because what would you do? One of the commentators on this passage of Scripture says that the priest and the Levite Um, Let me just read it because I don't want to screw it up. Um, (laughs) The priest and the Levite thought, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan uh, reversed the question and said, if I don't stop and help this man, what will happen to him? And that's a really important question for all of us. Because so often, and I love church I love being around the people of God. I love being part of the family, the spiritual family, where we get to build one another up and encourage one another. And many of us are in life groups and do life together, and we're strengthening and encouraging one another. And there's this scenario or this situation set up where here's a person laying half dead. In fact, you might even look at the situation and go, man, I think the priest and the Levite maybe made a wise choice because if he's half dead, that that means that it didn't happen that long ago, and these thieves and robbers are probably still hanging out and so I'm going to pass by and by the way not like pass by and look at him it's like man I see that guy I'm going to go up and around and try and avoid there because there might actually be robbers I might actually be inflicted with some harm as well 
And so they thought about what would happen to me if I stopped and helped that guy. There's the religious laws that they would have, you know, a dead person or a half-dead person, man, I gotta be careful, I gotta keep myself pure. And so there's this scenario set up where he says, what will happen to me if I go and interact with that kind of a person? But the point of the story and what Jesus sets up is what the Samaritan forces us to think through and what Jesus, in telling the story the way he told the story, was trying to force the, 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 the religious scholar to think through was what happens to that guy if I don't stop? Do you ever stop and think about the people around you? Do you ever stop and think about friends and coworkers and neighbors and classmates and people that we hang out with? Do we ever stop to try to figure out, man, what if I don't stop? What might happen to them? What might happen to their life? What might happen to their eternity? What might take place in their space and place? What might take place in their family? What if I stopped and there was an encounter that happened that would transform their life, their family, their future because I chose to take the time to stop and to care and to step into a space? Well, this is what Jesus is trying to help the religious scholar understand and it's what he wants us to understand. You and I have been entrusted with a message called the gospel, but it's not just that we're to share the gospel message. We are to practically live out by being gospel neighbors. I was watching a little, uh, a little thing on, uh, I think it's on Hulu. It's called The Jesus Music, Music, and it was this kind of just little documentary on kind of Christian music in America throughout the decades. And, and uh, they interviewed Amy Grant. How many of you remember Amy Grant? Baby, baby, put my heart in motion. That was the song that got her in trouble, by the way, you know? And so she, of course, you know, the Christian community reacted to her and all this kind of stuff. And they were interviewing her, and she's older now, and, and she made this quote. I thought, man, what a powerful, powerful quote. Amy Grant said that God is good, and we're just another one of his messy followers telling and trying to demonstrate to people how good he is. That's what we're called to do. We're called not just to, oh yeah, I got the gospel, great, got my ticket, I'm going to heaven. No, 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 we're to be salt and light. We're to be those who are neighbors to people that are like us and people that are not like us. That God would say, are you, I've put you here on planet earth. Why? Because God so loved your neighbor and your classmate and your coworker and the guy and girl that you go to the gym with. Like, God so loved, insert name right there. And he put you and I on this planet to be those who would be neighbors to people that are like us and to people that are not like us. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna just look three really simple things, we'll move through this quickly, that I think we learn from this story. And maybe I should say it this way. I think these are three things that challenge me and challenge us from this story. And the first thing is this, that what we learn is that we're the neighbor in need of help. You and I, we're the neighbor that's in need of help. One of the things that Jesus was trying to help this religious scholar, remember, he's self-righteous. He's got the answer to the question. Yes, it's love God. Oh, wait, I've got to love my neighbor too? Really? Like, I've got to do that? Well, I'm trying to justify myself. Who's the neighbor, Jesus? And, and, and Jesus won't let him off the hook. And what Jesus is trying to help this, this scholar understand and what Jesus wants you and I to understand is that you and I are not the good Samaritan in this story. You and I are the one that's beaten up, half dead. Where are we gonna get help from? 
Now, we do this, and, and part of it, I don't know if it's American culture or human nature. It's probably a bit of both, right? That, that when we read a story, we oftentimes put ourselves in the story as the hero of the story. Who doesn't want to be a hero, right? We love here. I mean, Marvel and Batman and Spider-Man and whatever your favorite superhero is, you know. When you're a kid, you know, what kind of, how many of you ever had this question, you know, what kind of secret power would you like to have? Like, we all want to be the hero. I get it. Totally cool. But what we've got to understand when we read the Bible, that more often than not, we're not the hero of the story. Go to the Old Testament. How many of you are familiar with the story of David and Goliath? Right? David, this young shepherd boy, right? Israel is fighting an enemy, and they've got this big dude. Like, he's like, I don't know, 10 feet tall. He's a giant, you know, and he's, he's just kind of intimidating Israel. He's mocking them, and he's saying, come on, send out your best warrior. Come on, take me down, right? And you know the story. Israel's like in fear, and they're hiding, and they don't know what to do. And along comes David, you know, just bringing a couple of sandwiches for his brothers. And he comes along, and he's like, Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? I'll go fight him. For goodness sake, God is with us, right? And so oftentimes what happens is that we insert ourselves into the story as the hero of the story. In fact, we're really bad at this in church sometimes. Sometimes you may have even heard a sermon this way. Listen, you're David. And your biggest enemy is Goliath. And you know what you need to do? Go get five small stones, I need you to go pray. I need you to go fast. I need you to attend church every week. I need you to become a worshiper. Oh, and by the way, make sure you tithe. Five small stones, and you're going to overcome your greatest enemy. That's not the point of the story. We're not David in the story. Goliath isn't your biggest enemy. Well, it actually is, and you'll discover in a moment why. But we're not David. We're Israel. We're over in the corner cowering in fear. We don't know how to overcome our greatest enemy, by the way, which is sin and death. And so we're in fear, not knowing how to overcome our greatest enemy. We're held captive and ensnared to sin, and sin is represented by Goliath in the story. Who's the, story, who's the hero of the story? Jesus. Jesus shows up. Jesus, in the most unconventional of ways, the most unexpected of ways, overcomes our greatest enemy, sin and death, and we're the ones who reap the benefit because we're set free just like Israel was set free. And so the reality is that oftentimes we read stories, and I encourage you, when you read the Bible, Lord, would you help me see myself in this story, and I'm probably not the hero. You're the hero. Now, where am I in the story? And in this story... What Jesus is wanting us to understand is that we're not the good, we're just not that good. Remember what he said to the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler, he had all these rules, you know, and the rich young ruler was, oh, I've done all of those things. And, and he said, Jesus said, there's no one good but God. And, and so we read this story and we go, oh, I'm the good Samaritan, I gotta go help people. And what we fail to recognize is what Jesus wants us to understand is, no, 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 no. I'm the good Samaritan. You're the one that's left for dead. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that, that we were dead in our trespasses. We needed someone to come along and rescue us. We needed someone to have mercy upon us. 
And this is what I love about having a relationship with Jesus is that Jesus comes along and Jesus is the one who binds up our wounds. He's the one that heals us. He's the one that carries us. He's the one that shelters us. He's the one that takes care of us. He's the one that says to the innkeeper, hey, if there's any cost, when I return, by the way, he's returning, I will cover the full cost. Whatever it takes, I got it. This is who Jesus is to us. And if we don't understand who Jesus is to us, we can never put these things into practice. And so the first thing that we learned from the story, sorry, I didn't mean to preach. Wow. <laughs> Woo! That's anointed preaching right there. <laughs> Could I say it this way? You and I will never be merciful the way Jesus wants us to be merciful if we don't first understand that we're in need of mercy. And you have received it because of Jesus. And so the first thing we learn from the story is that we're the neighbor in need of help. But the second thing that we learn from this story is that sacrificial love is the core of gospel neighboring. That if we're then going to live this out, remember what Jesus said. And Jesus said this to the scholar twice. Hey, you've rightly said, obey the law of God and love other people. Great, go and do that. Ooh, I don't know if I can do that. So let me ask the question, who's my neighbor? So he tells him a story and he says, okay, who's the neighbor in this story? Well, the one that showed mercy will go and do likewise. And so we have to understand we've received mercy and so we give mercy. We give grace, we give kindness. We live our lives not for self but for other people because that's how Jesus lived toward us. And the, the, the really at the core of Christianity is sacrificial love. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Jesus never used his power and his privilege on himself. Like ultimately he goes to the cross, right, for the glory of God because that's what was at stake and for our redemption and restoration. This is what Jesus did. He lived sacrificially. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for the life of another. The other thing, you know, you realize in the life of Jesus, like Jesus is tempted by the enemy. And if you remember, the temptations of the enemy was to use the power and the authority and the privilege and all that he had because he was the son of God on himself. Call down angels, turn that bread into, or sorry, turn that rock into bread, right? And Jesus doesn't do it because he understands that to be, to be Jesus and to be a follower of Jesus is to understand that at my core, I live in sacrificial love towards other people. Could I say it this way? And I want to just, you know, just speak to us as a church family. Our church is powerful only in so far as it is loving. Let me say it again. Our church, our church is powerful, is influential, can make a difference in this world only as far as it is loving. We have a God-given mandate, a responsibility to follow the example of Jesus in sacrificial love. And we've got to live that out. And so we learn from the story, hey, I'm the neighbor that received the mercy. I'm the one that Jesus, the Good Samaritan, came from, and I now need to be like Jesus. Remember we said that's how the breakdown of the book of Luke was? I've got to live out like Jesus, sacrificial love. But the third thing that we discover from this passage is this, is that gospel neighboring meets real human needs. This is what... I wrote this down. It says, gospel neighboring is meeting the concrete human needs of others, whether they believe like you or not, with such sacrifice that people will need to hear the gospel to make sense of it. 
Are you living in a way, a generous, sacrificial way towards others that others go, why are you doing this? Why are you loving me this way? Why are you caring for me this way? Oh, I've got an answer for that. You see, I was dead in my sin, but Jesus extended me mercy. Jesus put oil and wine in that healed my wounds. Jesus carried me. Jesus gave me shelter. I have an answer for why I live this way. And it's the kind of sacrificial love, the kind of generosity toward other people, not even people that are just like me, but people that are different than me, people that are not just in my in-group, but people that are in an out-group, that I'm living in such a way that they go, man, why are you doing this? And the answer to the question is the gospel. Because when you live as a gospel neighbor in a generous, sacrificial way towards others, it demands an answer, and the answer to the question is the message that you and I have been entrusted with. And look at this, you know, when you look at the story, the good Samaritan in the story, he meets some real needs. He meets the physical or healing needs or the health needs of the person, right? Pours oil and wine in. He stays with them. He binds up his wounds immediately. He trans- there's transportation needs, right? He puts them on his animal. There's a shelter or housing need that he takes care of. Financial needs, future needs, right? That any, if it costs anything, I'll take care of it when I get back. And then even psychological needs because if that a uh, man that had been beaten up on this road ha- ends up going there and he now owes the innkeeper something. He's going to end up being a slave. What's going to happen to him? What's, he's going to be indebted to this innkeeper. And, and so he recognizes that, that to be a gospel neighbor is to live in a radically sacrificial love way that cares for other people and other people that are not just like you, other people that are different from you. They might think different than you. They might look different than you. They might have a different ideology or perspective or opinion, more than likely they will. But how do we live towards other people? And I'm saying that because of the radical neighboring that Jesus has done for us, that we ought to live differently towards other people. And this is what it means for us to be a gospel neighbor. Like, what then motivates us to live that way? And I really think that there's, there's really two options because I don't think there's anybody in this room and, and I don't think there's anybody in the communities that we live in that would probably go, ah, you know, it's not good to be loving and kind to other people. I think everybody would go, yeah, we should do that. And, and so there's this morality that kind of says to be a good neighbor and care for others, that's a good and noble thing. We should do that, right? And if you're from a, like maybe a more progressive kind of line of thinking, you know, you go, man, that's just good for us to care for the poor. If you're from a religious, you know, point of view, you kind of go, yes, the Bible tells us to care for the poor. We should care for people that are not like us. And so we're all going, yes, that's really good. Here's the problem. Morality doesn't take you that far because it motivates by guilt. There's not really a transformation that's taken place in our heart that causes us to live from an entirely different place. So option one is that I could live and be motivated by morality, but I think what the Bible teaches us and always teaches us is that what motivates us is the gospel, that we recognize the radical mercy and grace that we've received, and it fundamentally transforms how we live how we treat other people, how kind and generous and merciful and gracious that we are to other people, that we, like this good Samaritan, like Jesus has from us. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't just take care of people that he liked, that he thought deserved it? Because none of us did. But Jesus cares for those who don't deserve it. And he welcomed them into his world and into his life. It's why this whole story got up. Why are you being so friendly? Why are you inviting them into relationship with you? 
And Jesus wants us to live that way. And so I think what motivates us, when we realize the mercy and the grace and how radically neighbored we have been by Jesus, it changes how we look at other people. It changes how we love other people. It changes how we forgive other people. It changes the way we might look at our neighbor and look at friends and look at coworkers and begin to say, God, if you so love them, what role am I supposed to play in also loving them? And I think the, good, the story of the Good Samaritan says, go and do likewise. That you and I are called to follow the example of Jesus. And so my question really is, okay, well, Gareth, that's great. I kind of get it. I maybe even feel a little bit kind of like convicted, a little bit challenged, a little bit like I could do something there, right? The question then is where do we start? And I'll end with this, real practical. I told you we were gonna be practical. But one of the things that in this story, and remember I said that when the Bible's put together, it's put together intentionally. And Jesus, or Luke, when he's writing this, he writes three stories, bam, bam, bam. And sometimes we read them and we go, okay, story of the Good Samaritan, that's great. What's next? And what's next? And we fail to recognize that they're actually all connected. And so the stories that Luke was writing about was, yes, the story of the the 70 that went out that said, you've been given a message. Go share the message. Urge people to believe the message. Oh, and by the way, when you do that, make sure that you're loving people, being a neighbor to people, being merciful to people. Like, Like cause them to ask you why you're living that way. You know what the answer to the question is? It's because I've been with Jesus. You know the story that happens after the story of the Good Samaritan? The story of Mary and Martha. Mary, or Martha, who's so busy. Mary just sitting at his feet. I'm with him. Because I've been with him, because I'm grafted into the vine, because of the life of Jesus that's flowing through me, I get his heart to live this way towards other people. And then, and this is what's so, so cool, Then what happens next is Jesus says this. Hey, let me teach you how to pray. Let me teach you how to stand in the gap for other people. And so, yeah, we should be radically loving people. We should be a neighbor to coworkers and classmates and friends and neighbors and the people that God puts in our path. We should live that way. We should be so generous that it demands an answer to the question. And the answer to the question is, oh my gosh, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me in the gospel. But you know where we can start? We can start in prayer. Because when I'm with him, just like Mary was, I can pour my heart out. And it isn't just about me, myself, and I. But because I have the heart of Jesus beating inside of me, I begin to stand in the gap for other people. And so here's what I'm asking of us to do. Real practically this week, when you go out today, we're gonna give you a little workbook. You're gonna notice that there's a banner on the wall in the, in the tunnel on the way out. And I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, who is it you've put in my path that I ought to be a neighbor to? Who is it this week I should be praying for? And here's what I want you to do. Write their names, because we as a staff, we as a church, when you walk by there, man, I want us to be mindful of the fact that God just didn't love the world. God loved John and Susie and Elisa, whoever else that might be in your world. There's a little bookmark that you're gonna get. I want you to write the names of the people down. Because you see, you're saying, I'm gonna be a good Samaritan. Well, here's, what I can, here's where I can start. I can start by praying for those folks. Write her names down. When you open up your Bible, pull it out. Lord, I'm just praying. Put it in your car. Put it in the mirror in your bathroom as you're getting ready. Lord, I'm just praying for these folks today. 
And then there's some stuff in this book that just this week, just two little pages, read it and then ask yourself, who's my neighbor? What are their needs? And how can I pray for them? Here's what I guarantee you will happen. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, will prompt you. You're gonna have an encounter with a neighbor. A conversation might open up and you don't even need to be scared about it because all you're trying to do is be a friend. You're just trying to love and be kind and be merciful. And I'm guaranteeing you, Jesus will use you this week. Can we do this together? Can we stand? And I just wanna offer ourselves, we're gonna close in prayer. You can grab kind of those things on the way out. How many of you would say, I wanna be a gospel neighbor? This is what Jesus called me to. And so Lord, we just offer ourselves to you. Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity, Lord Jesus, to live out the gospel. Lord, this good news that we've received, this mercy, this radical neighboring that we got from you, Lord Jesus, would you help us go and do likewise? That, Lord, the question isn't who is my neighbor, but am I proving myself to be the neighbor who shows mercy and love and kindness to other people? And, Lord, let it start in us, Lord, just by praying and standing in the gap and recognizing that, Lord, you answer prayer. There's things that you'll ask us to do and that, Lord, there are lives, families, and futures that are gonna be transformed because we chose to follow your example to us and be a good Samaritan to others. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody said... Amen, amen, amen. Come on, God is good.